Welcome to the next instalment in the Breakfast with Jesus series, uh, which I'm doing on Ezekiel. There's been a long pause since I did Ezekiel chapter one, but I want to get back back in the saddle again with Ezekiel because it's such an important book. And the more I think about Ezekiel, the more it frames a lot of the gospel. So this particular uh, talk will be on what I call the glory bookends of Ezekiel. It's actually the architecture of the whole book. And uh, you, could, you could give it a subtitle of why the penal substitution model of salvation uh, doesn't fit with Ezekiel. A very simple point to start, um, where if you think of the book of Ezekiel, it's 47 chapters. It's not just that it's long. It's also, as I said in my last talk, which was on Ezekiel 1, it's esoteric and it's filled with uh, almost psychedelic imagery, more than any other book in the Old Testament. It's like the revelations of the Old Testament. Now, when I did the Ezekiel 1 talk, I talked a lot about imagery and from a literary point of view, how imagery breaks open meaning. In this talk, I will use another literary perspective to help us with the book, and that's the architecture. Every major work of art has an architecture. For instance, we know that uh, Shakespearean tragedies have five acts. It isn't just that they're numerically five. There tends to be a rise and fall in those acts and uh, a way of looking at, at and understanding the texts and the minutiae of any play that's good is to look at the uh, larger um, arrangement of material, the, almost the, the, the rhythms, because the rhythms themselves are telling us something. They're telling us about contrasts. They're telling us about parallels. They're amplifying things. And Ezekiel does yield to that architectural reading. So imagine we're zooming out on a drone, we're way up above Ezekiel, and we're looking at the 47 chapters to try and make some sense of them. The point about this talk will be that the book is framed by glory. And the glory is anticipated in chapter one. It's almost like in chapter one, I get the uh, the setting of glory, which is heavenly by definition, not earthly. So I'm not seeing a mechanical picture of the universe. I'm seeing a transcendent picture of the universe. And then the framing is the glory departing, departing from Jerusalem and in particular from the temple. That's in chapter 10. The glory departs. Then... That's not the end of the story by any means. The glory departing happens just in one chapter or half a chapter. The glory returns. And the glory returns in chapter 40 through to 47. And it returns not to the temple in Jerusalem, which was bounded in space and time, but it returns to a transcendent universal temple is obviously presented to us in symbolic terminology. So that's the framing, glory departs, glory returns. And that is enormously um, important and useful to then put everything in the book inside those bookends.
Now, in parallel in the Gospel Conversation forums, Andrew Bartz and I have been looking at penal substitution versus a model of salvation that's more around dominion and, and sonship. And uh, that model really seems to fit in Ezekiel 1 in a way that the penal substitution model doesn't just not fit, but seems to be, well, absent, really. It's not, it's not on the landscape of mind. So in, let's just recall very briefly Ezekiel 1. Um, it, it, when I talked about that uh, in my last Breakfast with Jesus talk, it was, I exp- what I said was what it meant for me is that it sets the landscape and the scope of God's interests as the earth, not just Jerusalem. It's not parochial, it's not tribal. As I said, it's a ubiquitous God. Ubiquity is everywhere. And this is surprising because this is the first time in the, in the prophets that you've got a prophet who is physically outside of Israel all his life, to all intents and purposes, it looks like he was went with the exiles when he was a teenager. So his whole mental world is Babylon. And rather than viewing, his natural inclination would be to view <coughs> Babylon as alien, God as absent, um, because to the more localized mind, God's presence was locked up with Jerusalem. But lo and behold, chapter one, he, he sees the heavens peeled back and he sees God everywhere. Um, and, and, and particularly we looked at um, the imagery, not of the heavens, as in you know, God's pre-creational abode, but as the heavens that seem to be the dominion, the matrix that governs what happens or influences what happens on planet Earth. And we saw that the poetic vocabulary gave us some terms. The first were the wheels that touched the earth and moved. So there's action on the earth, but the action is animated by the spirit. The spirit was animating and driving the wheels. We saw the intentionality coming from cherubs, which were living creatures, but but there seemed to be some uh, transferability between cherubs and human beings because the living creatures look like human beings. Um, whatever the case, there's a council of glory that rules the heavens and it seems that you know, human beings are very present there. Above the, this dominion of the councils, there was an expanse. And so I think that alludes to the overarching providence of the deity over all things. And then above the expanse governing all things was a throne. So way above the council, there's a throne. And lo and behold, um, surprisingly, marvelously, in ways that I think anticipate Daniel chapter 7, the very last verse of Ezekiel 1, he sees not a man on the throne. He doesn't say that. It says a form in the appearance of a man on the throne. It looks like a quote unquote image of humanity is governing the created order. Now, the the historical context, which I've just alluded to, I think always useful to bear in mind, of course, this 
Ezekiel, certainly the first half, was written between the first and the final exile from, from Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem was finally destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar, who just had enough. I mean, they'd frustrated him and he, he kind of blew the place apart. That was the end. Prior to that, um, there'd been the first uh, exile where the Babylonians had kind of eviscerated the ruling class of Israel, probably eight to 10,000 people who looked like they were the intellectuals, the upper class, you know, the, the princes, the rulers, and the young king, took them all away and put a puppet king in. Um, and so in that interregnum between the two exiles, of course, the group who'd been exported to, there, there was an implicit rivalry between the group exported to um, Babylon and the group remaining in Jerusalem. And within that rivalry, Ezekiel was prophesying. And his prophecies amounted to the fact that this is the end. This is the end of all things. Um, it was at face value pessimistic because it was about the destruction of the temple. It was also optimistic. Its optimism came from its eschatology, not from the history that was unfolding before it. That, that's the historical context. In that situation, Ezekiel sees in chapter 10, the glory departing from the temple. And it's a glory that lifts off out of its incarnation in the temple. Uh, it withdraws. And that's what you can read of in, in chapter 10, the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. And it's a gradual withdrawal, bit by bit. It's, it's moving out until it says in Ezekiel 10, 18, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. So the glory of the Lord is, is here, but it's being withdrawn from planet Earth back up into the heavenly councils. And by the way, in chapter 10, the context of the withdrawal, the place to which it withdraws is, is evocative of chapter one, into that, that realm. So not saying the glory is extinguished. That's very important. It's not extinguished. It withdraws. Then in chapter 40, at the end, the glory returns, and it returns in this epic form. Importantly, very significantly, chapter 40 is preceded by chapter 37, which is the very, very famous chapter of the Valley of Dry Bones being animated by the Holy Spirit. The, the most complete picture of resurrection the Old Testament gives us then moves into not resurrection of skeletons, but the presence of God returning to the whole earth. And in chapter, chapter 40 to 47, the dimensions of the new temple are laid out. I mean... It does get a bit tedious reading all the architecture. Um, I, 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 don't, I can't comment on that too much, but it was very kind of symmetrical as if order is returning to the land. The really powerful culmination of it is in 47 when the temple becomes like a spring and waters start flowing out from below the threshold of the temple doors. And these waters increase... From a trickle, they become 
a river, from a river they become a flood and he's asked to measure it and swim in it. And in this beautiful language, he measures it. He goes in deeper and deeper and deeper until it's waist deep. And then it's a river he couldn't pass through for the water had risen. And it was deep enough to swim in a river that couldn't be passed through. And then he saw that this river was refreshing and nourishing the whole earth. In verse 7 and 8, he sees the trees. He sees brackish water because if, if you go down from Jerusalem and follow it, you'll get into the Dead Sea, which if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, nothing can live in it. But the brackish water it becomes fresh and, and there's, there's fishermen casting their nets. So there's a picture of really a return to Eden, all flowing out of the temple. It's a beautiful picture of life and water feels very much like it's a picture of the distributive power of the spirit that just as water does, animates everything, it vivifies everything and brings it back to life. So that's the architecture of the book. That's the bookends. Glory departing, glory returning. So the question is we step back and say, well, what's the significance of this architecture which is offered to us, which clearly frames the entire book. It's not like a verse here or there. This is the architecture of the entire book. So you step back and say, well, what does that tell us about the mental models we should use to think about salvation? because that's what this is about, Radio. This is not some abstracted picture of glory. This is about um, the devastation of glory departing and glory returning. Well, that's called redemption. Okay? So that's, that's redemption. Well, I think it, it shifts our perspective of salvation. Perspective is almost everything in revelation in understanding. It's much undervalued and not understood. And, and most of us are stuck in perspectives that are traditional. And most innovations occur when somebody looks at something from a fresh perspective. This perspective is from God's viewpoint, not ours. And this perspective issue reminds me of uh, von Balthasar's great phrase, he who sees the most wins. <laughs> Well, the most you can see on salvation is not looking at it from a human perspective, but from God's perspective. And if you think about the penal substitution model, it's from a human perspective, which is what's my personal destiny? Um, what's my personal pathway? What's my personal salvation? N none of that is God's perspective. But Ezekiel's perspective is very much God's perspective. And this perspective really shifts the scale from an individual scale to a cosmic scale. The imagery suggests that everywhere. Insofar as it touches the earth and insofar as it touches life on the earth, guilt on the earth, it's a primarily a geopolitical scale. The last thing you will get out of this is the modern evangelical introspection on you know my personal thought life my battle with desires or whatever you want to talk about it's not introspective it's geopolitical that's the that's the scale of the sin that's of interest in the glory departing returning the second thing it does this picture of salvation is it shifts our perspectives on sin and the fall ezekiel is framing the glory departing and the, the local historical sins of Israel. 
were indeed the immediate cause of the glory departing. But as I've just said, they don't fit our modern introspective moral code of sins at all. A far, far better way of characterising them is they fit into a geopolitical concept of the failure to rule. The failure to rule. That's what Israel had done. They'd failed to rule. The sins, as far as Israel are concerned, are national. Because as a nation, Israel has betrayed its calling. That's, that's the context. In this book, though, very obviously, the scale becomes international. Because the judgments that are detailed, you can read them for yourself, quite astonishingly move beyond Israel between the two bookends. The interesting one is Tyre. I mean, there's two chapters, very long, 27 and 28, on Tyre and God's judgment on Tyre. And it frames that judgment on Tyre in language evocative of creation in the image of God, as if Tyre's um, commerciality and greed and acquisitiveness has betrayed its creational mandate. And then it moves to Egypt and Assyria, multiple chapters. So it looks like God's interest is not just Israel. In terms of the failure to to rule, it's a failure to rule wisely. Ezekiel 5 verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done and the like of which I will never do again. Very interesting, isn't it? This is like the flood. I'll do this once and once only. But what this language says to me is Jerusalem is meant to be a light on the hill for the world. That, that's its calling. And really, to understand its calling, it's best to go right back to the beginning, which is Abraham. Uh, Genesis 12, I'll make you a blessing. Now, the blessing was meant to be the stewardship of the revelation of God to planet Earth and to the nations around. And they'd, So this sin, this sin is the failure of their calling to be a blessing to the nations. It's not a private, introspective, person A, person B, person C, and their battle with sexual desires and their battle with greed. However you want to characterise a list of sins, a moral code, it's, it's, it's a failure to rule wisely. And then it became idolatry. And in particular, it became a defilement of the temple. And the defilement of the temple is talked about in Ezekiel 8, where he, in the spirit, brings Ezekiel to the entrance of the court. This is what I'm reading out. And when I looked... Behold, there was a hole in the wall of the temple. And then he said to me, this is the angel directing him, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall. Behold, there was an entrance. He said, go in and see the vile abominations they're committing here. So I went in and I saw. And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing. And beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. Before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. 
And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, in the dark, each in his room of pictures? Oh, what an incredibly evocative picture that is. I mean, it's a picture of graffiti. It's a picture of the temple being defiled by sensuous, um, grotesque, pagan imaginings in each little room. And it's the elders, not just the priests. It's, uh, it's a very uh, poetic, uh, I presume not literal, but poetic judgment on what had been happening in the temple, specifically in Jerusalem. Now, when we get on to what the temple means, you could go back to Ezekiel 8. Uh, the temple becomes the cosmos. And the cosmos is meant to reflect the glory of God. That's, that's what it's meant to do. And you might remember that the original architects um, of the temple, um, so the tabernacle which preceded the temple, that those, those architects, um, they, they created patterns. They created floral emblems. They created their pictures on the wall. God told them to do that. And they were pictures of beauty. And it was Bezalel, who was the first person in the Bible to be named as filled with the Holy Spirit, um, who, who led that work. So the picture of the tabernacle is really a picture of the cosmos, where the human mind has recognized the glory and beauty in the cosmos and created beautiful things. Whereas in this picture, these same elders had bastardized that and they'd created pictures but they were dark pictures and it's kind of like mm, what humanity's done with creation we've we've framed it in grotesque terms so that's a very cosmic view of sin and a very cosmic view of fall as a mass deception the next really important point on salvation that we get in this glory departing glory returning is that Grace is overarching. It is the antecedent. It overarches. It's primary to sin and it is the antecedent of salvation. Repentance is not the antecedent of salvation. Because the book itself, after chapter 10, immediately after the glory departs, you get chapter 11. And what do you get in chapter 11? Among the most famous promises of redemption in all of the Bible. This is how it's worded, important. As I read it out, to re just listen for this, this is the point that Douglas Campbell makes a lot in his work on covenant. In our normal penal substitutionary evangelical model, we tend to say you've got to re you know, recognize your sins, repent of them, and as a result of that repentance, you will get saved. The big problem with that normal evangelical salvation gospel is it just can't get out of the fact that Repentance becomes a merit, <laughs> a good thing you do that earns salvation. No matter how you twist and turn, it's there. Um, Douglas Campbell maintains, actually in the Bible, it's the other way around, that you get converted and then you repent. <laughs> well, this is actually what it says and here in Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far off among the nations, yet... I've been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they've gone. I'm going to go with them. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the 
peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things, all its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I'll be their God. Grace is going to overarch everything. Grace is not outflanked by sin. Grace is the boundary of all things. And clearly, you just got to read the text. The text does not say when they go into exile and if they repent while in exile, I will return them. It never ever says that. It doesn't say it in Jeremiah. It doesn't say it in Ezekiel. It says, I am going to bring you back and I'm going to give you a new spirit. The result of that, the result of you being given a heart of flesh, of you being put back in the land, why? That they may walk in my statute. So obedience changes from being a condition of God's blessing to a result of God's blessing. Pretty grand, eh? Um, so the two archetypes that frame this move are glory and temple. Um, I'll, I'll finish on these because I'm not going to develop them because I think that I'll do that in a second talk. But just to, to finish by saying the bookends are the glory departs from the temple and the glory returns to the temple. So far, I've been discussing, let's call it salvation, which is the verbs, departing, returning. That's, that's the kind of drama of salvation. The paradigms within which the drama is to be understood are, first of all, glory. That's what's lost and that's what's regained. Not anything to do with guilt or anything to do with penalties being paid or whatever. It's not a forgiveness paradigm that may be involved in it, but it's a subset of it. Glory is a quality of life that we lost and will regain. And then the context into which the glory is lost and regained is temple. Now, both of those words are clearly paradigms. They're synecdoches. They're, they're words that are very, um, have, 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 they're, they're, they're tips of conceptual icebergs. That's the way the Bible handles them. We know that Jesus himself famously said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. In which case, they all thought he was talking, he said that outside the walls of the physical temple, he wasn't talking about the physical, he was talking about his body. And the body becomes, the temple becomes the body. So clearly the Bible itself is using the word temple in, in symbolic terms. And the same with the word glory. Glory is, a, is what we lost. And glory is a very um, tricky word. It's a very tricky word. It's clearly all throughout the Bible. It's a framing word. I've been studying it of late, a lot lately, and I will return to it in the next talk. So in the next talk, what I want to do is dive down into the bookends, dive down into the word glory, dive down into the word temple, and say more about those. This talk is really just get your mind around this magnificent architecture that frames the whole and I think reframes what salvation means. Glory departs, glory returns.